Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. As we've been going through this 50 Days of Freedom, uh, today we're going to talk about weapons of freedom. Weapons of freedom. And we're going to look at a passage, 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, on the sheet it says verses 3 to 5, but I want to expand that a little bit. We're going to look at the first six verses, verses 1 to 6, because I think it gives you a good context of why Paul is now talking about this whole concept of weapons of freedom. And, and if you remember, we've been talking about uh, spiritual warfare, how warfare matters. We've been talking about waging war. We've been talking about winning the battle. And, and one thing that came to mind was, you know, all of these topics is leading us down a particular path or a particular route to help us experience freedom in a deeper way. And one of the questions that came up was, how are all these pieces connected? Like, are we just going deeper and deeper and deeper? Or are we eventually going to come out and, and see freedom? And how, is, how does spiritual warfare connect with the authority? How does it connect with strongholds that we talk about? And so uh, as the leaders and, and the pastors we were talking, we realized we just wanted to provide you an overview, a roadmap for how all the pieces of each of these weeks really connect together so that we even understand even why are we sharing about strongholds this week? Why are we talking about repentance and obedience this week? Why are we going to talk about generational patterns the following week? So I have a really quick diagram for you. And uh, those of you who, anyone familiar with this iceberg photo? Some of us, yeah, we've heard it. And it's used in a lot of like business contexts or other contexts. It's also used uh, when we talk about our strongholds and, and we talk about freedom. Because when you think about an iceberg, you only see about 10% of the iceberg above the surface of the water. 90% of what's really there is under the water. And that's why the Titanic sank, right? So that's the moral of the story of the iceberg. When we think about freedom, what we really have to understand is that we have to go deep to unearth the 90% of the stuff that's deep down inside of our lives to experience freedom. So if we think of our present situation, we're in bondage, we're struggling, we're going through struggles, we, we are fighting these idols in our lives that we can't seem to shake. And if we want to see the future, we want to see us walk in freedom, we can't just simply go from one side to the other. It doesn't work simply like that. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us, we try to say, God, I want to experience freedom, but it doesn't just come automatically. And so what ends up happening is we have to go deep. We have to dig down. We have to go through the different issues in our hearts. We have to uncover. We have to share. We have to pray. We have to uh, dig into the roots of where we're at. And only once we get to the very bottom of the depths of our heart and the issues that we have and the source and the roots of those issues can we be able to come up and experience that freedom. Now, if that's the overall framework and structure, then I want to show with you how we laid out these eight weeks to mirror and to map out that pattern. So week one and week two, what do we do? We covered warfare matters, and we talked about winning the battle. We talked about our strongholds. We talked about our authority in Christ, and we have these things. That's where our present is. We would want to get to that place of freedom, walking in freedom. That's where we're going to end in week eight. In order to go deeper, to go from the beginning where we are in the present in order to get there to the future, we're going to have to go deep. In order to go deep, what did we do last week? We talked about strongholds. We talked about idols in Judges 6 with Gideon's story. And as we talk about those strongholds, what do we need to do? We need to tear down those strongholds. We need to repent. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about weapons of freedom, repentance and obedience and intercession. And as we talk about that process, we have to go deeper because many of us, we can't deal with our strongholds. We know that we struggle with passivity or fear but we have to understand where do those come from. And so in week five and week six, what are we going to do? We're going to talk about generational patterns. We're going to talk about our family history. We're going to talk about the, the blessings and the curses and injustices that we've struggled with for so long in our lives. And then once we finally get to that root and we understand, oh, this is why I struggle with why I do. This is why I'm always anxious. It's because my family always was anxious or I grew up in a very anxious household. Then as we repent of those things and we say, God, these are the weapons of freedom I'm going to use in order to come against those things. And that's going to then free us to say, Lord, then I can repent, I confess, I can now walk in your truth, I can abide, because this whole process that we're experiencing, we can't do this by ourselves. We need to do this in a relationship with Christ, 
as we abide in him, that's going to be part seven. And then as we're abiding in him, then every single day we want to walk in freedom. We're going to celebrate in week eight. How many of us, we're excited to, to get to that point? We're like, oh man, I, I can't imagine what that's going to look like right now. I can't imagine. It's so far away because right now I'm stuck in the depth of, of the ocean underneath the iceberg, but we're going to get there. And we just wanted to lay out a roadmap so that you can understand where we're at, why we're doing what we're doing. And so you'll notice that we're jumping because last week was week three. We're jumping to week four. We're going to talk about weapons of warfare. We're doing that first because for week five and week six, it's going to be a lot of really deep stuff that is going to be really hard to deal with. We want to equip you with the weapons in order to deal with that before you even hear it so that for two weeks, you're not just left like, oh, what am I doing with, with my life, right? You're, you're going to be stuck in your sin, and you're going to have, so we're going to equip you with the weapons so that you know how to deal with it. And for the next two weeks, once you talk about the wounds of the past and we talk about the words that have power, then we can apply the weapons of freedom right there on the spot and encourage one another. So hopefully that gives you a good idea. Again, if you need a reference, we'll share this with your life group leaders. They'll share it with you during the life group time so that you have a reference for where we're going to go. So anyways, we're going to hopefully you turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to talk about weapons of freedom. Now, when we think about the whole concept of like winning, we think about like what is it required in order to overcome or succeed? Like all of us, we want to succeed in life. All of us, we want to to, to overcome the strongholds and the issues that we have. And there's a lot of different ways that the world presents to us as options or avenues in order to overcome our strongholds or our weaknesses. Now, let me put, before we get into like strongholds and all the spiritual stuff, like just take a worldly example for a moment. Like just get a show of hands. How many of you have done any kind of job interview or exchange interview in the last like year or so? Raise a hand. How many of you have been in an interview before, okay? Uh, keep your hands up if you've had to answer the question, what is your greatest weakness? Okay, majority of you, you've all experienced that question, asking, what is your greatest weakness? And I don't know if you've watched any videos of, uh, you know, people recommending or going through like practice interview questions, like they're recommending to you, how do you answer this question, what is your greatest weakness? And usually the reason why they ask you that question is because they want to see if you can turn your weakness into a strength. They want to know if you're working on your weakness. Why? Because the, the world's idea, the, the, the company's idea of success is someone who's competent enough to take a weakness that they have and turn it into a strength, right? Something that you're not good at and say, this is how I'm working on it. These are the things that I'm doing. These are the extra classes that I'm enrolled in. This is the extra effort that I'm putting in. And this is how I'm mitigating my weakness so it doesn't affect your company. It doesn't affect our bottom line. And that's so much like what the world says. And if you don't believe me, I want to show you a video. Uh, you know, there's lots of Instagram influencers and all that kind of stuff. All these videos, I was just on YouTube, like so many videos of what are the best ways to answer the question, what is your greatest weakness? How many of you did that? And some of you were like, oh man, I answered the wrong way. <laughs> like I said, I was a perfectionist. and that's, that's the wrong answer. I, I don't know about you, but it's like three-step formula to transforming your weakness into a strength. Three-step three, three formula in order to present yourself, even though you're weak, to work on it and to say, this is how I'm successful. This is how I'm going to add value to your company, to your business. And, and what the world is really saying is it's saying that you can't be weak. If you find a weakness, you got to cover it up. you got to do something in order to present it as something you're strong in. And like, man, I was on YouTube a little bit too long last night like looking for videos on weakness. And I was looking, I was actually looking for a video that talked about how it's actually good to share your weaknesses, right? I was looking for a video to reinforce like why it's actually beneficial to be honest, to be open about your weaknesses. And you know what? I couldn't find any of those videos. It was so hard. Like the only video I found was like about Justin Bieber sharing something about sharing your weaknesses. And I'm like, okay, that's Justin Bieber. But how many of us, we struggle with this idea that in order to be successful, in order to overcome our, 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 our difficulties, our, our obstacles, our strongholds, that we somehow have to do well, that we have to be perfect, that we have to present ourselves a certain way in order to get to the place that we want to get to. And that's the problem, is that so much we buy into what the world promotes when we don't realize that what the gospel says and what the, the scripture says is completely the opposite. Scripture talks about how in our weaknesses, that God's power 
is the one that is magnified, and it is God's power that helps us to overcome our strongholds. That's what we want to talk about. That's what we want to discover, that if we were to really overcome our strongholds, we cannot do it according to the way that the world does, but we have to do it according to the pattern of Scripture. And so if there's one thing that we want to look at and understand, this idea is that we destroy strongholds with God's greatness when the gospel is demonstrated through our weakness. That's the only way, not through our strength, not through our competence, not through anything that we've done, but we destroy strongholds with God's greatness when the gospel is demonstrated through our weakness. So hopefully you've turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at the first six verses. And uh, if you want to follow along in the mobile app, there's some notes there. One thing that I just want to apologize for is that part of the notes for the first section, they're slightly out of order because I realized I changed it, but I didn't send the changes over to the teams that were working on it. So my apologies, but it'll just be a quick switch and it won't affect it too much. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6, the first thing that I want us to focus on is this idea that we have to boast in our weaknesses. We have to learn to boast in our weaknesses. Otherwise, we're not going to ever make any movement in terms of working through our strongholds. The number one weapon of our warfare, of freedom, is to boast in our weaknesses. So let's read together verses 1 through 3a. This is what it says. It says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness in Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, and take a pause there. So Paul, Paul is the author of this, of this text. We're looking at the, the letter of 2 Corinthians. It's written to the Corinthian church. And just to give some context of this letter, there were two letters that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And Paul had a very interesting and somewhat difficult relationship with the Corinthian church. When, when he, first, he, was, he was the one who planted the church. He was the one who, who started the church there. But after he started the church, he started to realize there were some issues. So he wrote 1 Corinthians to address division and pride in the church. And after when he, he went about his way, he, he went to other places, did his missionary journey. And then somewhere along the way, as he wrote that letter, he made a visit to visit Corinthian, the Corinthians again. And he encountered a really difficult situation. He had to write a very severe letter because when he visited the Corinthian church, there was a tearful uh, encounter. There was someone who was attacking him. And it was a tearful visit. And he had to leave because the visit was so difficult for him. So after that visit was difficult, he wrote a very severe, a very difficult letter. The one that was very severe, very rebuking of him that we don't have today. We, we've lost that letter. And in 2 Corinthians, now what he encounters is there are people who's questioning him, saying, Paul, why is it that when you come in person, you're so bold? Sorry, it's the opposite. Why is it when you write your letters, you're so bold? You write the severe letter, you're rebuking us, but when you come in person, you seem so weak, that you are, you, people chase you out of the city and that you leave in a very humble way. So I, I just wanted to give us that context because that context is going to help us to understand why boasting in our weaknesses is part of the weapons of freedom. So this three verses here in verses 1 to 3a gives us a glimpse into how Paul's opponents who were criticizing him for his inconsistency, how they viewed him. If you look in, uh, in verse 2, there's, there's this phrase that says, um, there, there's, I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So there are some opponents there who suspect Paul of walking according to the flesh. So the question is, what, it, what does it mean to walk according to the flesh. In the NIV, it says, live by the standards of this world. In the HCSB, it says, behaving in an unspiritual way. So they were talking, they were, they were, they were proposing to Paul that, Paul, by you being bold when you're far from the church, but so meek and so humble when, when you're with the church, that's unspiritual. Like you, you're, you're weak, Paul. You're inconsistent. You should, you should be bold all the time. How can you be so bold in your letters, but when you come, you're like a wimp. You're like, you're like nothing. That, that's, not, that's, not, that, that's not the mark of an apostle. That's not the mark of God. And we see this reinforced in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10, which is just a couple verses down. And Paul is now describing what the arguments of his opponents are. He says, for some say, Paul's letters are demanding and forceful, but in person, read it together in the yellow. What does it say? He is weak. 
and his speeches are worthless. They're saying, Paul, you're weak. You're nothing. Your words and your letters, they don't, they don't represent really who you are. That's just a sham. Who you are in person, you're weak. He says it again in 2 Corinthians 11, 5-6. He says, but I don't consider myself inferior in any way to these super apostles, those opponents that were criticizing him, who teach such things. I may be what? Unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. We made this clear to you in every possible way. So his opponents were saying, Paul, you're weak. You're unskilled. You, you don't know what you're doing. You, you don't have the right to be called an apostle. You're not bold. You're not strong. And you not being bold or strong makes you unspiritual. It makes you worldly. You're not someone that God calls. Because if God really called you, then you would come up and show up and, and show us by your oration skills, by your speaking skills, what God's truth really is. And if you look at history in the Greco-Roman world at the time, oration was a mark of someone's competence. If someone could speak really well, then they would gain a lot of followers. The more followers you had, the more notorious or the more famous you were and the more regarded you were as a speaker. And on top of that, throughout Paul's missionary journey, in the third missionary journey, he went from city to city, getting chased out of certain cities. From, from Ephesus, there was a riot in Ephesus. He got chased out of there. Jews were plotting against him. So if you just put this in perspective, it's as if, so, I mean, I know this is like, like first century, uh, you know, Jewish and Christian history. So you're like, what does this have to do with us? If you, if you were to put in mind, like, Paul is like a criminal on Interpol's, like, most wanted list. And these people are criticizing him, like, how can you be our pastor? Like, if, you're, if your pastor, if Pastor Seth and I were on Interpol's most wanted list, you'd be like, uh, <laughs> who is this guy? Is he qualified to speak? Is he really a man of God? That, that's what they were thinking about Paul. They're like, Paul, there's no way. You're being beaten. You're being chased out of cities. You're not speaking boldly. You don't have the authority. Like, how are you in any way spiritual? And the question is then, how does Paul respond to these concerns? And we see how he responds to these concerns in these first three verses. He responds to the accusations in the most weird way, contradictory way, that we would approach any argument or any opponent or any stronghold for that matter than we would. He responds to the accusations with meekness. Verse 1, what does he say? I, Paul, myself, he's saying, this is me. This is who I am. This is my identity. By the what? Meekness and gentleness of Christ. By the meekness and gentleness in Christ. What is, that, what is that word meekness? I don't think it's something that we typically use in the English language now. In the NIV, it translates as humility. In the, in the humility and gentleness of Christ, I come. And then he gives the church two commands, two verbs. These are the only two verbs in this whole passage that he uses. And the two verbs are what? I entreat you and I beg you. I entreat you and I beg you. Talk about the worst way to come against your opponents. Like if someone is accusing you of fraud, if someone is accusing you of being a fake, are you going to be like, please, sir, I hope you would consider. In my, in, in my humble and honest opinion, I'm not what you say I am. Right? It's like... Are you kidding me? Like, there's no way we would, we would respond that way. But Paul responds that way, and it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in the world's eyes. And not only does he beg, not only does he entreat, not only does he, does he humble himself, but he, he capitalizes on his weakness. We look just uh, one chapter later. This is Paul now describing, not only saying, Lord, please, like, I'm not who you think I am, but he, cap he doubles down on his weakness. He says, actually, you know what? My weaknesses are a good thing. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 30, it says, and, and he's using rhetorical questions to question the people that are his opponents. And it's a little bit longer of a passage, but I'll just go through it quickly because I think it really helps us to understand why he's boasting in his weakness and what it talks about. He says this, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at seas on frequent journeys and dangers for rivers, dangers for robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through a many sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. He doesn't say, I'm, just, I'm not that person. He's not like, please, please, like, don't think badly of me. He's saying, this is who I am. I am weak. And I will boast in my weakness. I will, I will brag about how weak I am. It's, it's like you go back to that Interpol example. It's like I am on the, the police's most wanted list and look at all the stuff that I've done. Look at how many people are after me. Man, no one likes me. No one likes me. Everyone's like trying to kill me. It's like, that's not the type of thing that the world looks at and be like, oh yeah, I want to follow that guy. And the, and the challenge for us is our perspective is so different than Paul. Our perspective is anytime we, we face something that has happened that's bad, a failure or a weakness, a difficulty, a struggle, what do we do? We try to hide it. We try to suppress it. We try to conceal it so that no one knows. So that no one has any idea who we are, where we've been, what we've experienced. Let me just give some examples. The, the, the easy ones. Like, what do you do when someone on the street tries to take advantage of you? Like, like they try to rip you off in the ladies' market. You're like, no way, get out of my, you know, you, leave, you walk away. Or you start arguing with that person. What, what do you do when someone... On the, on the MTR, you know, the walking path or the MTR escalator, they cut you off. You're like, what the heck? What is that? Or you're in line for something and that person cuts in line. You know, what does everyone, like, they start, they start judging, you know? You're like, what Or someone bold enough starts to speak up and be like, what are you doing? Get, get the back of the line. What, what do we do when your colleagues, right, start to t- talk bad about you, start to criticize you? You defend ourselves, right? We defend ourselves. We, we guard. We, we, we try to justify, like, no, it wasn't my mistake. It, it was that other person, or it was the system, or it was the code. Sorry, it was a programming insight thing. <laughs> the code, you know. <laughs> Sorry. You guys didn't get that unless you were programming. But. Let's, let's, let's make it spiritual. What happens when someone asks you why you didn't do your soap? What's your, what's your initial reaction? Is it like, oh, thank you so much. I, I feel so loved. No, it's not. It's like, oh, shoot, let me do my soap. Or like, oh, yeah, yeah I've been so busy. I don't know. Like, I just haven't been able to do it. You give excuses. What happens when someone points out something in your life that's a character issue, a sin, or a flaw? Is your first reaction like, oh man, yeah, you're right. I am messed up. I'm so broken. Thank you so much. Please, more. What, what other sins do I have? I don't know anyone who's ever done that. Usually it's like, ah, oh, I don't know. Or like there's some of the other things. Yeah, I've just been going through a really hard time, you know, in my life. I've been going, you know, exam, you know, my boss. Like there's so excuses, reasons, justification. Why? Because we don't want to be exposed of our weakness. We don't want to show how broken, how, how, how messed up we are inside. And I think this ties directly into our stronghold. When, some, when someone asks you, like, are, is your stronghold fear? Are, are, you in, are you enslaved to fear? Like, what, what are you going to do about it? What, what's our natural response? I mean, if it's like part of, you know, initially it's like, no, I'm not. And then you go through the worksheet, you're like, oh, wow. Actually, I don't, I don't know how many of you, I heard so many stories of people who went through the worksheet this past week at Life Group, and you're like, oh, wow, there's so much more fear than I ever thought there existed about fear. And I have checked off so many more boxes of fear than I ever thought. So if our, if our first reaction isn't 
at least like, no, I'm not. Then maybe it's, oh, yeah, I'm afraid, but I'm doing these things to overcome it. Sounds just like a job interview. I've, I have this three-step process. Capture the fear, understand the fear, and don't be afraid. <laughs> right? I don't, know, I don't know how many of you like go to work like, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, please, don't be afraid. Like, go to the exam, oh, don't be afraid, I'm, I'm not scared, I'm not scared, I'm, I'm so terrified, right? You're, like, we, we try so hard to not be the, the, the very weakness that we are. And we, we conceal it. And I, I mentioned the character flaw thing too, but so many times when, when someone points out a character flaw, someone says, hey, you're sinful in this area or you're broken in this area, you got to work on this area, what's our, what's our next step? If we, like, let's assume you, you're not even denying it because many of us, we deny it, but let's, just, let's assume you've already overcome the denial part. What do you do? Come with a five-step process. Let me do SMS. Specific, measurable, set time. I got this plan. I got it. We're good. Let's go. Let's move forward. I don't got this character flaw no more. I got this SMS plan. I'm, I'm going to move forward. We got this. We're good. What do we do? We try to do something to mitigate it. We try to do something to conceal it. We try to do something to hide it, to prove to ourselves that we're good enough. We've done something in order to overcome our weakness, rather than coming full disclosure and say, you know, I am broken, I am messed up, I have nothing. Because we have this false idea that when we're growing spiritually, when we're overcoming our strongholds, is that we become more and more perfect, more and more good, more and more put together. When the gospel says the opposite, Christ says, I am weak. I come in the meekness and the gentleness of whom? Of Christ. And if Christ was crucified, then would we not be weak as well? Would we not be able to boast in our weaknesses as well? Because what? It's not about us. I like this quote, what Charles Stanley says in his sermons and online. He says, no one enjoys feeling weak, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, or physically. There's something within the human spirit that wants to resist the thought of weakness. Many times, this is nothing more than our human pride at work. Just as weakness carries a great potential for strength, pride carries an equally great potential for defeat. We hate being weak. We don't want to share our weakness. But in not showing our weakness, what happens is we give in to our pride. And that, if anything, is probably the worst direction that we could go into. That is the worst direction that we could possibly go into. I, I, uh, before I became Christian, I, I struggled with this a lot. I struggled with this idea of being weak. When I, when I was a pre-Christian, I, I, was, uh, I was part of life group. I was exploring the faith. I wasn't really ready to commit my faith. But one of the things that really tipped me over was this idea of really becoming a better Christian. And I was part of one of those life groups, and you know, they gave some next steps. And one of the next steps was pick one area of weakness in your life and try to work on it this week. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I, one of my areas of weakness is I judge people. I'm very, very judgmental, and, and I realize, like, if, if I don't like being judged, then I shouldn't judge other people, too. And so I'm like, here I am. I'm, I'm, I got, this week, I'm going to work on not judging people. And I remember walking on the campus uh, when I was a first-year student. Like, every day, as I was trying to not judge people, I, I don't know what, like, I just realized I judged people so much. It was, like, crazy. It was, like... I look around and I'm like, that person, eh, what's wrong with that person? Oh, what the heck is that person? Oh, that person's pretty awesome. You know, I was just like going crazy in my mind. I was like, wow, I didn't realize. And I know it could have been like a psych psychology thing, right? The more you think about something, the more you realize you're actually thinking about it. It causes you to think about it more. But like the more I tried to stop judging, the more I realized I could not. The more I realized I could not. And it came to a, a really big moment when I was walking, the university that I went to, University of Michigan, there's, you know, American universities are known for like frat, fraternity and sorority culture. And so, you know, I think in the Christian circles, there's generally not a very good view of fraternity and sorority because of the lifestyle that they live and all this kind of stuff. So here I am, part of life group, walking back to my dorm, passing a fraternity. And as I'm walking by, there's this person, I won't, you know, disclose who it is. I actually didn't know who the person was, but they were just dressed, or may I say, not so dressed, uh, walking down the street. And I was just like, 
who the heck does this person think they are? And immediately these thoughts crossed my mind like, they're probably, you know, like part of that frat, you know, indulging in the worldly stuff all the time. Uh, probably their parents are very rich. They probably paid the university to get in. And they probably are failing in school. <laughs> like, and I don't know, I like, back then I wasn't Christian, but now as I look back, that was probably the Holy Spirit that convicted me like, right there, boom, you're a judgmental person. <laughs> and I was like, right there, I just felt the Holy Spirit like saying like, you're so judgmental. And the harder you try to fix your judgmentalness, the more you're just going to realize how judgmental you are. And when I realized that, I was like, oh man, like I cannot fix my own judgmentalness. I cannot make myself a better person. I cannot be strong on my own. If anything, the only way that I can turn and I can actually live in some way that I could be okay with myself, because I, I really didn't want to be judgmental. I realized that was a, a sin or a flaw in my life. The only way I could live somehow okay with myself is if I admit, I confess that I am judgmental. And I realized that I needed Christ. And that was the, the, the first moment, to my knowledge, that I was convicted of sin, that I needed Jesus, that I needed someone to forgive me because of my own issues. And man, that was, that was such a freeing realization for me to be able to admit that, Lord, I am weak. I am judgmental. I am messed up. And I need some power greater than myself. Because if I do not, then I'm going to be in this endless cycle of pride of trying to overcome my own judgmentalness by my own strength, but never making it anywhere. Never being able to overcome it by my own strength. And, and for us, like how many of us, we are trying to fight our stronghold with the weapons of pride and of the world. When in reality, what is Paul saying? He's saying by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, we come in humility. We fight the strongholds not, by, not with human strength, but with our weakness because that weakness, what? Exposes God's power and his strength. That is why we boast in our weaknesses. That is why we come in humility. We need, we need to come in brokenness, admitting who we are. And it's only once we admit who we are, then God's power can actually rest on us. One thing I do want to say is part of coming in weakness, boasting in our weaknesses, number one is sharing, which I heard many of us, we shared very openly and vulnerably in our life stories this past weekend, which is awesome. That's awesome. That's the first step. But it's not just a once a, a, a life group thing. You're like, okay, I just got to wait for the season that my life group does the life stories, and then I'll share my weaknesses. No. You share your weaknesses every single time you come. Not just to, you know, share all your stuff, but why? Because as you admit who you are, that's where God works. So number one is sharing. Number two is through prayer. The way that you demonstrate weakness is through intercession, is through prayer. It's not doing all these things, because what do we do when we see our weakness? We try to do more. We try to compensate. We try to say, okay, I have this plan, SMS. I'm going I'm to overcome my weakness by my own strength. But it's through prayer saying, oh, God, I cannot do that. Prayer is a demonstration of weakness, of frailty, of humility. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit us, helps us in our what? Weakness. Amen. Thank you. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know what to do in our weakness. The Spirit is praying for us. And all we can do is say, Lord, I need help. And what is that? That's a prayer. That's why we're emphasizing prayer over and over again. That's why we're doing our all-night prayer. That's why every life group, we're reserving time to pray for one another. Because what? That's the ultimate display of God, I cannot and only you can that's the way that we boast in our weaknesses. We've got to boast in our weaknesses, but not only that, but we have to also repent in light of God's greatness. We have to boast in our weaknesses, but also repent in light of God's greatness. The second point, I'm going to read verses 3b all the way through verse 6. It says this, We are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So if Paul is boasting in his weaknesses, now the, the next couple of verses, he goes on to explain what does it mean to repent 
in light of God's greatness? How, how do we actually turn these weaknesses to see God's greatness and actually to overcome our strongholds? He talks about, in verse 3, he talks about how there are people who are accusing us of walking according to the flesh. And remember, we talked about that whole concept of walking according to the flesh. Is this idea of being unspiritual, not bold, not strong in, in Paul's oration. But for any, any of us, it's like doing things by human strength, doing things by our human ability. And Paul is saying, we are in the flesh, right? In verse 3b, he says, we are in the flesh, but we do not wage war according to the flesh. So what is Paul saying? He's changing the metaphor. He's saying, we are walking in the flesh. We are in the flesh. We are weak. We are humble. We are broken. But the way that we demolish strongholds is not through our flesh, not through our, bro- not through our weakness. What is it through then? It's through God's power. What are the ways that God's power demolish these strongholds? There are three ways. Paul talks about demolishing strongholds, and he gives three words, three verbs, three concepts of how these ideas of God's greatness demolish strongholds. The first one is it demolishes arguments. It demolishes arguments. The arguments that Paul was facing in that time in the Corinthian church, I mean, obviously, the opponents. The opponents were arguing, logically, Paul, if you're inconsistent, you were writing these strong letters, but you are so weak when you're in person, then you must not be a super apostle. You, might, you must not be a man of God. You must not be an apostle. Because logically speaking, if you're really from God, then you ought to be bold. You ought to be confident. You can't be weak. You can't be humble. And what does Paul say? He says, I don't, I don't wage war against... I, I, What's it called? He says, For the weapons of warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He's saying, it's the knowledge of God that demolishes those arguments. It's not myself, not my flesh, not my weakness, but it is the knowledge of God that demolishes those arguments. What is the knowledge of God? Who is God? God is the creator. God is the, the, the most holy. God is Upon high, God is perfect. God is sinless. And we are nothing in light of who God is. All humans, all people, we are sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we understand God is who he is, then, hey, opponents, your argument doesn't make any sense. Because if we really know who God is, then all of us, we're broken, we're messed up, we're sinful. No one has any right to be bold. No one has any right to be confident apart from God. Your argument doesn't make sense when it it comes to who God is and understanding the knowledge and the holiness and the power of God. Your your, your argument is a moot point. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27 and 29, he says this, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. None of us, none of us can boast. None of us can consider ourselves great. So any human boldness is a moot point. Now just think of, just just think for a moment, think of your stronghold, whatever your stronghold is. Maybe some of us are like, okay, the only thing you can think of is just fear. Or some of it's rejection, some of it's approval, some of it's passivity. Just think of it. Think of your stronghold as like a bully coming up to you, accusing you. And they're using the argument. Let's just use competence because this is something I struggle with. Competence, for example. This bully is coming up to, to me. Pastor Bo, you're incompetent. And if I were to wage war according to the flesh, what would I do? No, I'm not. I, I am competent. I'm good. But then deep down inside, what do I know? I, I feel incompetent. I feel worried. I feel, so that's where the anxiety comes. But if I tear down the argument with God's, the knowledge of God, what happens? The bully comes up to me and says, Pastor Will, you're incompetent. And what do I say? Yes, I am. You're right. We're all incompetent before God. And what is the bully going to do? Uh, okay. <laughs> he can't say anything, right? Because if he keeps on saying you're incompetent, you're like, yeah, I am. Thank you. Awesome. Because what? God is competent for me. It's not about my competence. If, if I'm incompetent and anything good happens, then God is more glorified. And so anytime bully, you say I'm incompetent, then God gets more glory. 
Praise the Lord. You've just empowered God's glory. And the bully's like, oh, crap. Oh, no. What did I just do? I gave glory to God. Right? You totally demolished their argument. Let, let's say your stronghold is approval from others. The bully comes up to you and says, you are, you are not approved. You're, you're a horrible person. No one likes you. And what do you say to that? You're right. No one does like me. And in fact, no one liked Jesus either. And if G no one liked Jesus, but then he was accepted by God, that must mean I'm really loved by God. Wow. The more rejected you say I am, the more loved I am by God. That's incredible. Like you totally demolished their argument. And we have to understand it's the knowledge of God. We take every lofty opinion, we put it against the knowledge of God, and it doesn't make any sense. Because everything compared to God is broken, is weak, is nothing. And it's only when we recognize that, then we begin to what? Demolish the arguments that others are using, or our strongholds are using. Second thing that we do, the arguments, is not only the arguments, but also the thoughts. Whose thoughts? How do we demolish the thoughts? How do we destroy these thoughts? What were the thoughts? The thoughts were not just of the opponents of Paul, but the Corinthian church was also being influenced. They were thinking, Paul, are you really this? Did you really plant this church? Are you really this person? They started to question. They started to, to wonder, like, Paul, I don't think that you're that great because you do seem weak. You don't seem like you're consistent. And it's really interesting because Paul addresses this in the first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, you don't remember. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 to 25, he says this, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We, we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. So, Corinthians, if you're thinking that you got to be strong in order to be good or in order to be accepted by God or in order to overcome fear, then you are so misunderstood. Because in order to obey Christ, what? You have to what? Be crucified. Christ is crucified. That's the opposite of what you're thinking. Your thoughts, we're going to take your thoughts captive by putting them to obedience to Christ. And if Christ is crucified, if Christ is the power of God in our foulishness, then we're flipping this whole thing 180 degrees. It's no longer being strong that you're strong. It's when you're weak that you're strong. It's when you're foolish that you're wise. So your thoughts are going to be totally shifted and renewed by Christ, by putting it in obedience to Christ. Because if Christ says, I am weak, and only when I am weak I am strong because I am crucified, that's when I am exalted, then our thoughts have to be in line with that too. Now, interestingly uh, enough, like we know this, but we don't believe it. The reason why I am confident that we don't believe this is how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of us we've been memorizing verses over the last several weeks? I was like, yeah, I know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That is the one verse I know. Any other, the rest of the verse, I don't really know. But I know I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But what about all the other verses? What about all the, the blessings? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What about knowing that I am crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Galatians. Like, there's no way we can allow our minds and our thoughts to obey Christ if we don't know what Christ says. If we don't know what Scripture says, if we don't know what God's Word says. The renewal of your mind happens through Scripture, through understanding, through memorizing, through meriting your mind. No wonder why in life, every single time, we're going back to those memory verses. Every single application is what? Memorize verses. Memorize those verses. Why? Because the truth of God that's going to help you to know what does it mean to obey Christ because obeying Christ goes against what the world says. Turn to your neighbor and say, let's memorize these verses this coming week. <laughs> one, one more thing about thoughts. It is very interesting because that phrase, obey to obey Christ, taking every thought captive to obey Christ, it's also translated in other versions as obedience of Christ. In the AMP, the NASB, the NKJV, they say obedience of Christ. 
I think it's a very interesting situation because, you know, is it really obey to, uh, to Christ or of Christ? And, and I would say it's both, but the reason why obedience of Christ is really interesting is because when you think of it as obedience of Christ, it can mean the obedience that comes from Christ or the obedience that Christ demonstrated for himself through the cross. So when you think of it as taking every thought captive in obedience of Christ or like Christ or as Christ obeyed, what is it saying? It's saying your, your thoughts need to be conformed to the example that Christ lived out, which was what? Weakness, suffering, humility, crucifixion. Your thoughts no longer should be like, I am great, I am awesome, I do things on my own, but it should be, I am weak, I am broken, I have not much. And it is only God's, His power, that resurrected Christ from the grave that I have any worth at all. That is the obedience of Christ. That is the, 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 the struggle that we go through. That is the tension that we have every single day. Is do we believe that our worth is inherent of ourselves by what we do or what other people think of us? Or is it because of what Christ has done and the work that he has done, not only on the cross, but resurrecting from the grave so that we have the power of God in our life? Now, like, man, if, you're, if your thoughts have that kind of power, there's nothing that can stop you. There's no stronghold that could tear you down. Like, let, Name any, any stronghold, any stronghold. Like, man, I was criticized my whole life growing up. And, I was, and that's why I have a poverty of the mindset. That's why I'm so low self-esteem, all this kind of stuff. What do you say? Christ resurrected from the grave. It's not my power. It's his. Like, wow, that's, that's amazing. Because it's not, yeah, you, you have really low self-esteem, but God's esteem for you is so different. His esteem for you is the power that resurrected Christ from the grave. He overcome the cross. He overcome death. Like if you have that kind of power, it's no longer yours, but it's God's. And you're like, that's incredible. Because it's God's greatness that is so much bigger than mine. And, and now I can walk like, well, there's something so different about the way I can live my life now. My thoughts are being renewed and I, I worship him. So it's the arguments of the thoughts. And the last one is, it's the disobedience. The disobedience and the disobedience is to the gospel. It's these opponents who are opposing Paul, saying, Paul, you're weak, you're, you're foolish, you don't come boldly. But Paul is saying, I'm going to punish that disobedience. And you know what I really think he's saying? He's saying, hey, some of you who think that way, I wonder if you really know the gospel. I don't think he's really going to come with like whips and cords. Like that's not Paul because he comes in the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's not saying, he's not going to be like, I'm literally going to throw you in jail or something like that. But the punishment according to the gospel is what? You might not actually know the gospel. You might not actually trust in who he is. And I think that's a challenge for us is some of us, when we're fighting these strongholds, we might come to a point where we realize we don't actually trust God. We don't actually believe that he is who he says he is. We don't actually believe that he actually died for us and that he rose again. Because if we really did believe that, then we will be free to walk in this weakness and we will be free to claim God's power for ourselves. I'm going to skip over one of these verses, but I want to read this quote from John Calvin. It says this, For men have no taste for God's power till they are convinced of the need of it, and they immediately forget its value unless they are conditionally reminded by awareness of their own weakness. We have no taste. We have no desire for his power unless what? We are reminded over and over again of our weakness. It's only when we are weak, we turn away from being strong by ourselves. That the whole word repentance, it just means turning away. We turn away from our strength. We say, God, I am weak. That is when we are able to taste. That's, where, that's when we're able to experience his greatness his power in our lives. And it is that great, it is God's greatness that enables us to overcome the strongholds that we so desirely want to. And that is the weapon for freedom that we have. And I just want to close out with this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10. He said to me, this is Paul, same letter, just a couple chapters later. He's concluding, he says, but he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. How many of us, we, we're like, Lord, that's me. That's what I, that's what I want to experience. That's what I want to, I want to see in my life. I want to know that I can boast in my weaknesses because when I re- repent, when I turn from this pride, from this view of myself that has to be strong, that has to be good, that has to be competent, that's when I can see God's power, God's greatness work in my life and actually overcome the strongholds that I so have so much difficulty with. And I believe that as we come to the cross, we come and see God's power, we repent and confess our pride that we're going to see that happen in our life. And that's why the one thing is that we destroy strongholds with God's greatness when the gospel is demonstrated through our weakness. We destroy strongholds with God's greatness when the gospel is demonstrated through our weakness. I want to give us a couple next steps. And uh, the first one is going to be really practical. I, w- I want to go over a tool that some of you might have learned previously uh, whenever we did gospel fluency things. But I think this is going to be really helpful for us to practice repentance. Because like, when we just think about this concept of repenting, and coming in weakness, we're like, you know, is it just, okay, just saying this prayer, like, God, I'm weak, and I repent. Like, there, there's a couple steps that will actually help us to go deeper in repentance and actually experience God's power in our lives. And it's called uh, the fruit-to-root tool to destroy strongholds. We're going to repent using the fruit-to-root tool to destroy strongholds. Let me, let me explain the tool really quickly. Uh, there's going to be a diagram right here, and there's six steps. On the left side there's going to be this uh, scraggly old tree. On the right side, there's going to be this really healthy looking tree uh, that is full of fruit. And so the first step we're going to look at is you're going to identify what are the unhealthy fruits that you see in your life. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to ask, like, what am I feeling? It could be anxiety. It could be stress. It could be uh, failure. It could be any kind of weakness or difficulty or struggle that you might have. As you begin to understand that, then the next step you're going to do is you're going to ask, who am I? Who, who, what is my identity? Like, what do my feelings and behaviors from the first part show about what I believe deeply about who I am? Where, where is my identity? Where's my worth? And as you begin to understand who I am, then you're going to realize that it, de- it shows me who I believe God to be. And it's not God as in the Bible, but it's this false God. It's this fake God that we believe in. That's the problem. It's the God that we think of human strength and human pride and all this kind of stuff. Now, when we are able to identify who is God to me, then the process of repentance happens when we go from the left side to the right side. To say, God, I don't want to believe in this fake God, but I want to believe in you who is the true and good God. So you go to the right side and you ask, who is God? Who is God according to the scripture? Who is God according to truth? This is where memory verses would be really helpful. Say, God, you are good. You are loving. You are kind. You are going to protect me. You are going to, you call me your son. And as you begin to affirm who God actually is, then you ask again, and then in light of that, who am I? In my new identity, in my original design, in the authority of Christ, who am I? I am, I'm dearly loved. I am, I'm, I'm. I'm joyful. And then you begin to then express finally the healthy fruits, the fruits of the Spirit, which is now how can I respond with joy, with hope, with faith, with peace, with love. I wanted to give a quick example because um, just to give us a practical uh, way of actually going through this and also just to share personally, like even last night I I was stressed out. I was anxious for today's sermon. And I was like, it was T, T8. And then uh, it was, ra- even though it was T3, it was raining like crazy, but I had to run a couple errands. And I like, had set aside the whole day to work my sermon. I was like running behind. I was like, God, I don't know how I'm going to finish this. And I, I just didn't feel like oh, I was in the right place at the right time. And then I was like, okay, but I got to do these errands first. So I was like, you know, Noah was needing stuff. And so Erica was taking care of him. And so no one else could do the errands except for me. So I had to go out. I was like running around doing laundry. I was like, we're, we're cleaning out a room and like going to the laundromat and like it was raining as so I was taking the umbrella and like, what am I doing here in the big rain? Like carrying on an umbrella with all these 
sheets and stuff to a laundromat and then picking up food and going shopping. And I was like, I was like getting like so stressed and not because I was like, I'm better than this. Like that wasn't because I wasn't like, I shouldn't be doing these errands, but I was just like, God, I don't know how, if I have the time to, to, to create a message that people are going to enjoy. And I started to realize those unhealthy fruits of what I was experiencing was what? It, it was anxiety. It was stress. It was fear. Fear of failure. I, I was afraid of, of what people were going to think if I couldn't share well, if I couldn't present myself well. And then what did that mean about who I was? What, what, what did it show about who, who I believed myself to be? I realized I believed I was incompetent. I realized I believed I was worthless. I realized I believed that I was a failure. Those are things I deeply believed about myself. And then if I ask myself, well, then who is it that I believe in? What, what kind of God do I believe in that must be true if I believe that I'm worthless, I'm incompetent, and I'm a failure? Well, then I must believe that God is unloving. I must believe that he's a, like a, a strict boss. He's, uh, he's unwilling to, to help me or to care for me. And, and as I realized that, and I was literally going through the rain, I was like, Lord, what is it that you're speaking to me about right now? I'm like, Lord, this message better apply for me right now, for myself. And I was just praying, and Holy Spirit convicted me of this one verse, Galatians uh, 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now the life I live, by, uh, the, now I li the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I realized, you know what, God? I am weak. I, I can't do this on my own. I'm not competent enough by myself to present amazing... I am, I am not like one of those celebrity preachers who like, has these sweet taglines that everyone reposts on social media. But I am not, because I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. And I know that God's word, when it goes out, it will not return empty. That is not the speaker... That is the main part, important part of the message. It is the, it is the word of God. It is the Holy Spirit that speaks. It's not about me, God. So who do I believe God to be then? Then I believe God is who? God is a loving father. He is a helpful counselor. He somehow uses me. I don't know why. He, he, he uses, his, his power doesn't come through me, it comes through his resurrection. Him rising from the grave, that's the power that we have. That is the amazing power that we have. It's not in me. And then who am I? I'm loved. I'm cherished. I'm no longer a failure. I'm, I'm empowered to fulfill my purpose. I can come up here and share, not because I'm great, but because God is great, because God's word is true, and I lay my life down on that. And it's his word that's going to set us free. It's his cross and his empty tomb that gives us hope. And then what do I do? How do I respond? Peace. Man, every time I come up here, I'm just so thankful. God just gives me the sense of peace and joy and privilege that I get to participate in God's work, God's word, his, his freedom process. We didn't come up with this. It was God's idea, God's purpose, God's plan to set us free. And I want to encourage all of us, we're going to go through this during Life Group this coming week. And I want, I, want, I want every single one of us to experience that. This process of coming on the left side, admitting, God, this is who I am. I'm broken, I'm weak, I don't know who you are. I, I don't believe in you. And we go to the right side and we say, but God, you are who you said you are. Your greatness. I repent. I repent, I confess in light of your greatness that allows me to experience and walk in freedom. And the last two next steps, 
as we repent using the fruit to root tool, destroy strongholds. Number two, we replace a bad habit with memorizing scripture. Let's do this. I don't, like, in order to do what I just did with the fruit to root, you have to know scripture. If, ever, if you're going through it and you got to thumb through a Bible all the time, it's going to be too late. Especially, like, you're walking around and you encounter your stronghold. You should be able to do that fruit to root through your mind as you're experiencing that. Yes, we're going to help you to practice in life group and stuff, but you have to be able to do it within your mind and you have to know scripture. You have to know it in, in, in your heart. So take a bad habit that you have. Let's say you scroll Instagram. Replace that with memorizing scripture. Delete Instagram. And wherever Instagram app was, put that Quizlet app right there instead. And so reflexively, whenever you go to Instagram, you'll, you'll hit Quizlet and you'll be like, oh, memorize verses. Or replace it with the Netflix app. Put it where Netflix usually is. And be like, oh, all right, all right, I'm going to memorize scripture instead, all right? Do something to replace a bad habit with scripture memorization. Let's commit to it this week. And lastly, is recommit to interceding and praying for freedom. We got to pray because that's a demonstration of weakness. When you share a prayer request, that's a demonstration of weakness. And when you come and pray for someone else, that's a demonstration of humility and saying, God, your, your power is the only power that we can tap into to honor you. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.